0: If I take a look at each of us, there is so much of an interdependency which we have with the rest of the universe that we tend to underestimate that. These are words of wisdom from my guest today. I want to welcome this week's guest KL Mukesh to the show today. Mukesh is the co-founder of SITAL, a science community platform provider that enables students to engage and get mentored by experts from various industries. Mukesh has an excellent balance of large-scale global corporate experience combined with rich entrepreneurial experience as a mentor and advisor to a host of startups and investors. He is a husband, father, spiritual seeker, venture partner, mentor and entrepreneur. I'm talking with Mukesh about eating and better sleep on a budget. This episode is packed with thoughtfully specific protocols to get you started on supporting your sleep and health while staying within a low budget. I'm thrilled to have him here today. Welcome to the Sleep Whisperer Podcast. I'm your host, Deepa. Join me and my many expert guests and medical professionals from the cutting-edge science of functional medicine of the West and ancient wisdom of the East. Learn all about how to discover your root causes of poor sleep and understand the proper tools and techniques to end your confusion and begin getting a good night's sleep. It's time to regain hope and begin your sleep journey with the Sleep Whisperer Podcast. welcome mukesh to the sleep whisperer podcast and uh, today we are going to have a conversation which many people will greatly value which is how to eat and have great sleep on a a fairly uh, low budget so definitely these are times which are challenging financially emotionally so a lot of people struggling with financial uh, challenges so it is a time that even if somebody wants to eat healthy and improve the quality of their health their sleep and their life they definitely need to be able to implement all what we recommend on as low a budget as possible but before we get to that Tell me about how did you reach here where I know you for a while now and what I think of when I see you is compassion, a great compassion for every little soul. So I want to know what actually brought you on this journey to where you are today. What brought you here?
1: Well, I will not quite portray myself that much of a saint, but anyway, so here's a very quick background. So very early in life, you know, when you're in your late teens, many of us, we explore different religions, we explore different philosophies. And one of the very interesting stories that I came across was actually from Buddhism. Okay, where Buddha is having a meditation class and it's a silent class. So people meditate and then Buddha raises a flower. And then He has a whole bunch of devotees, there is one person, Anantapadmanabha, he smiles. So the classic Buddhist question is, why did Anantapadmanabha smile? Okay. And the reason is fairly straightforward. So if you take a look at a flower, it doesn't have an independent existence. I mean, it could come into existence because of water, because of clouds, because of wind, because of a whole bunch of things in the soil, all kinds of bacteria, everything. Now, obviously, the flower does have an intrinsic flowerness. Okay, so there is some individuality out there, but when it is necessary, it's not sufficient. Okay. So if I were to take a look at any of us, there is so much amount of dependency that we have with the rest of the universe. We tend to underestimate that. So, for example, if I take a look at myself, my education was in a school which has government aided. My master's was in a place where I actually got scholarship from the government. Okay, and my MB also was highly subsidized. Mm. Now, where did all that come from? Okay, it is the common man who when he bought a packet of Britannia biscuit or Parleji or whatever it is, he paid some taxes. That's gone to fund me for sure. Okay, and when you tie the when you when you kind of connect the dots you'll see across the board, there are a lot of things that happen where we gain from the universe one way or the other. And the moment you acknowledge the fact that you are what you are, not just because of who you are, but because there's an ecosystem that supports you, it, it's only natural that you'll start caring for everything. It's, it's as simple as that, actually.
0: But how do you have so much knowledge about uh, every produce what goes in why we need local farming and uh, you are very conscious about um, not having anything which is global and uh, there's lot of uh, conversations about this going on everywhere local versus global and you are very very conscious about keeping it immensely local and also to the point where you are really looking at how many people actually think up of what does one kilo of a vegetable cost and most people today don't do that in uh, large section of the society. But I feel even during these challenging times, one of the positive change that might happen is because everybody is deeply impacted. It's a leveler of some kind. So this might actually lead to people having internal conversations with themselves about uh, understanding all what A lot of people have been going through for a very long time, which others have been oblivious about, but it becomes really important to think about this today and uh, local farming, of course. Supports supports, other than supporting local uh, farmers themselves, it also plays a big role on the whole environment. So there's definitely less uh, emissions, there's miles which are not used in uh, probably importing a random fruit or a vegetable. So how is, why is this local farming so critical to India and why should more people be thinking about it? And I have actually, uh, we've had some um, little tips over the plant-based versus the omnivore conversation. But one of the things that concerns me of plant-based today in society is that it's actually very, very, Uh, expensive to be plant-based by many. Now I'm not talking about the local um, farmer and the society which has been eating your local produce but the plant-based culture which is taking over Indian society where you need to have avocados and quinoa. So why is it critical that whatever is somebody's diet that they Uh, support local farming? And why is this important on a large scale?
1: You know, multiple reasons out here. Okay, really, there are many dimensions to it. So let me start with the most basic one. Okay, that is, you know, the the entire notion of global supply chains, centralised supply chains, all those things. You see the current pandemic. Okay, it's largely because you have a very globalized supply chain where there's a huge focus on efficiency and very little focus on resilience. Okay, see inherently decentralized systems tend to be more resilient, as compared to large centralized systems. So one part pretty much is the philosophical view into the how the society needs to be organized, how the world needs to be organized. Okay, that's one part of it. Okay, the second part of it. Pretty much is obviously, you know, if you think about in general society stability, okay, unless until there is some amount of, I would say a fair amount of local economic activity, a local support, you will leave behind large amounts of commu- large communities that are extremely marginalized, that inherently is going to cause distress one way or other sooner or later. Okay, that's the second part of it. But there's a third part of it, which goes well beyond everything else as well. I mean, what we talked about as well, you know, in very simple terms. So let's say, for example, you take a cabbage. Okay, very simple vegetable. Ideally, that's not something that would grow naturally in a Tamil Nadu or a Karnataka. Okay, so given the fact that okay, it does not, it's not natural to this particular place, the only way you can grow it is you soak it with pesticides. So if I take a look at a cabbage, how does it grow? The innermost layer first comes in. Then there's a chance of a pest attack. So you spray pesticide on it. Then the next leaf comes in. You spray pesticide on it. The next leaf, you spray pesticide on it. Now, two parts. One is, what's the kind of damage that it'll cause you as a person? I mean, even if you were to say that, okay, forget about all altruistic motives. Even from your selfish perspective, what's the damage that it'll cause you? Right. Okay.
0: Physiologically.
1: Physiologically. Then the second piece pretty much is, and, and Deepak, again, you're pretty big on the microbiome and all that, okay. Just like a human being has a microbiome, even the soil has its own microbiome. Right. Which pretty much supports the plants and all that. Now, when you do, when you spray it with a huge amount of pesticide and all that, you're also killing the microbiome out there. And how do you ever get back from that?
0: And that's also why the soil has become so deficient today that Correct. people are showing up deficient in so many vitamins and minerals is because of this.
1: Correct. So in general, if I take a look at it, if you have something which is locally grown, which is natural to that particular place, your need for soaking it with pesticides, your need for soaking it with resources is not there. Hmm. And you'll see other examples as well. So for example, you take sugarcane cultivation in India. Okay. You cultivate sugar cane in a place like Bahramati, okay, where you know it's a water scarce area. I mean the amount of resources that you use to cultivate the sugar cane, you're depriving a different section of water supply. You're causing a whole bunch of damage. Okay, see, there are side effects for many of these things. And if you recognize these side effects, I guess you'll become a bit more conscious into the what you consume. That's number one. Number two, even if I take a look at it from an economic standpoint, obviously if you have something that will naturally grow over here and thrive over here, okay, it will be less expensive for you to grow that. Okay, So for example, a amaranthus, a red amaranthus that you buy over here in Bangalore mm. will for sure cost less than lettuce. And there's a good reason for it. Okay, Now, ideally, I would argue and say that, okay, well, why would I believe that okay, amaranthus and maybe some combination of vegetables, why can it not give you the same nutrition okay, that maybe a lettuce and some other things can give you? I mean, Chancellor, you will be able to combine things locally
0: and get... Oh, of course. In, in fact, the in my mind, actually, the, the, in huh. my mind, the amaranthus actually seems to have a lot more phytonutrients than a wilted lettuce. Yeah. It's got a glorious color. But one before you go further, I want to stop you for a second to ask you because recently there are some companies which are global. And uh, like, uh, I don't know if it's okay to mention names, but uh, they are actually working with local farmers in India and they are cultivating crops like quinoa, which are not local to the farmer. But they are ensuring that the farmer receives far more for his crop than he would with a local crop. And they've been able to sustain this for 15 years. So would you say if there was a model like that where because the society is demanding that kind of crops, that if there was a way to actually support local farmers and have that grown in a way where they benefit more financially, then it's all right to go down that route?
1: Okay, so complex question. Okay, so let me, let me give you a bit more perspective out there. See... When you say local, the reality is there's nothing that is 100% local. Okay, there is there is some sense of balance. So for example, if I take a look at Indian food, like okay, take the humble dhaniya, which is so important for our cuisine.
0: Hmm.
1: It didn't come from India. Take for example, our millets came from Africa. Take for example, your chole came from Iran. So the reality pretty much is, when you say local, you also recognize it's not 100% local, local. The issue pretty much is, over a period of time, it has adopted to the local conditions, and it kind of works, right. So even over here, let's say, for example, if you were to get a quinoa, okay, from Peru, or wherever, okay, and let's say you grow it, footwinds of i mean, let's say in Andhra Pradesh, wherever, okay, if you're able to grow it in a manner, okay, where it's environmentally okay, then it's absolutely fine. Mm. Okay, the idea is not one is not dogmatic about this. The idea, pretty much, is there's a healthy balance that you need to strive for,
0: especially if it supports the local farmer. Absolutely, in absolutely.
1: Okay, and and again, there are multiple dimensions to this that you need to consider. So, for example, lettuce, in fact, you can grow it profitably in a OT. Okay, now the issue, pretty much, is what really happens is the amount of pesticide that you use. Mm. You just need to go and take a look at the river and see if there's any marine life at all. Right. Nothing out there. So the fact that you grow can grow it profitably is not good enough. That's one of the dimensions. Hmm. But there are other dimensions as well into the what it does to the environment, what it does to sustainability, what it does to your health. There are multiple dimensions to it. And it's unlikely that anything will be optimal in all dimensions. That's not possible. Then you take a judgment call as to what's the right balance and take it from there.
0: And do you also feel that if everybody could at least apply Uh, whatever best they could to their own life, then we're all adding little drops that are bringing about some change. Absolutely. But I think also that... Health fads today are really moving away from local because if you look at health trends, they're literally fad based. So you will see that if globally there was the culture of the green smoothie, suddenly it's all over India as well. So fads are forever changing in healthcare. And uh, is there a way, I mean, this is something that's here to stay. There are going to be health fads. They are going to be transient and changing all the time. Nothing's going to be permanent, which is why I also I want to add that whenever I have some doubt, it's always good to go back to thinking about what your ancestors did and then try to apply that back because that way there's still some solidity in trends. Mm -hmm. But suppose these trends kept changing, is there a way that people could adapt them to their local context? For example, maybe if they were uh, fascinated by a green smoothie, then to use local uh, spinach rather than something which is from far, far away in a way that it can be actually um, used by masses in a way where it's affordable, more conscious overall, so that it still stays with those changing fads, but you're applying it to your uh, present day. Yeah, and so culture. You
1: know, you'll see some very good examples of that. So, for example, traditionally, if you take a look at a biscuit or a cookie, always based on maida, Okay, and some kind of margarine. Okay, but today, okay, somehow the people have figured out how to make a ragi biscuit. Mm. Okay, so to some extent, there is a bit of mix and match that will happen. Okay, so I think while the fats will remain, there will always be ways. Okay, where you can actually do some kind of a blend. So, for example, okay, even if you take a look at a pesto, I mean, at the end of the day, a pesto is a glorified chutney. Yes. Okay. Now. In principle, okay, if somebody were to come and say, okay, hey, the humble chutney that is there, I'll add a bit more, you know, what are your local nuts. Can you get a flavor that's slightly different from a pesto but maybe equally nutritious and maybe equally enjoyable for the local palate? Absolutely, yes. So some of these experiments will continue and I'm pretty sure okay, people will adopt. And, and you, you can do it all the time, balance. you do
0: it all the time. Just yeah. quickly tell us what goes into your smoothie.
1: <laughs> so, so basically, if I take a look at my smoothie, okay, generally, almost inevitably, it'll be some local fruit. Inevitably, it'll be some local vegetable. Okay, so pretty, why
0: do you add vegetable? Tell us why. Because a lot of smoothies today are full of fruit sugars, so why why do you add vegetables?
1: See, multiple reasons. First, I definitely believe that vegetables are very healthy. Okay, so that's the primary reason. The The second piece pretty much is, in all honesty, if there is something that is just entirely sweet, I won't actually enjoy it. I mean, I, I do like to have that variety in taste, where you get a bit of astringent, you get a bit of bitter, you get a bit of sweet, you get a bit of salt. I, I enjoy the diversity. So even if I make a smoothie, I'm pretty okay once I'm putting a sapu, in okay. that, which has a very peculiar taste. Okay, but having said that, that's part of cultivating a palate as well, right?
0: Yes. Although not everybody can do that, but I think physiologically, the... Uh, Science of what you said about adding vegetables is that you're trying to keep the glycemic index low because adding tons of fruit can make it very high in glycemic index and load. So it's a very sensible way to make a smoothie because it cuts down that GI and it doesn't swing blood sugar for many, many people and women are highly susceptible. So that's a great tip actually. Um, So tell me, how can you have tried to adapt an anti-inflammatory framework very beautifully into a local application? So suppose somebody wanted to eat very healthy on a budget, on a principles of anti-inflammatory, which is uh maybe uh, temporarily like even ayurveda says initially when somebody has a lot of symptoms and disease they're taken off heavy to digest things like gluten dairy sugar uh, allowing the body just uh, more light digestion where it can then heal itself of its symptoms so how could you just tell us actionable steps on how can somebody apply these frameworks practically day to day if they wanted to eat only local and on a tight budget?
1: Okay. See, first and foremost, okay, obviously every region will have its own local stuff. So for example, where I live in Bangalore, okay, ash good is local, ridge rich good is local, a pumpkin is local, okay. Various types of greens are local. Okay, but on the other hand, if I do to live in Assam, okay, a cabbage would be local, a cauliflower would be local, there's different, you know, flavors out there. Now, what you really do is you take a look at what is available out there, and to a fair extent, you see if that combination can more or less get you to a balanced diet.
0: So do you mean see what's out there is that people should actually go and look at the local vegetable vendor rather than a Correct. large supermarket Correct. because there everything's going to be available. Then there there are people who actually may not be able to understand what is local, what is global. Correct. So going down to who's pushing the cart and selling Correct. vegetables. So, so
1: Theda is the best guy to tell you what is local. Yes. Okay that is number one and secondly the other thing which is very obvious is that okay well if there is stuff that's available around the year okay the odds are it is refrigerated preserved all those things not always but most of the times mostly okay but if you have things that spike into the supply periodically okay odds are okay that is probably grown in a right manner it is in a sustainable manner so there are some markers out there in terms of what exactly you can consume. Okay, the Telawala, as you pointed out, okay, is obviously there's one marker, and there are a few others. So you take some of those things and see how do you balance it out. Mm. Okay, so for example, in our case, let's say for example, obviously the greens that we have, okay, the pumpkins that we have, okay, and for fruit, for example, the jamun, the purple jamun. Okay, or the Which
0: is your In fact, I don't it is the most wonderful uh yeah. a better option to blueberries, blackberries, because it comes at those season and it's got that it, the surface area one jamun is much bigger than a blueberry. So the phytonutrients along that is much, much more magnified. And if you actually blend that up even five jamuns it gives this rich purple color so why are we talking about anthocyanins in blueberries and blackberries we should be waiting for jamuns but i know so many people who drive past the jamun cart not knowing what it is and also people who think that it has no great flavor which it might be but then you have to figure out a way to make that more palatable for you so every fruit may not be by itself immensely flavorful but you can spice that up with uh, making a smoothie with a local nut and little bit of raw honey, and it's going to taste fantastic. The yeah. same goes with cherries.
1: Yeah. So over here, if I take a look at, I mean, there are bunch of things that you get. For example, admittedly, a jackfruit. Okay, very, very sweet. But in small quantities, I'm pretty sure it's brilliant. I mean, yes. ans- answer is to have it all all the time. Okay. So I, I remember as a kid when I would go to my village. Okay, dessert. Would be jackfruit peanuts.
0: Yes.
1: Okay. I think it worked out just brilliantly. Okay, so you'd have a jackfruit, you'd have a bit of peanut, and you'd munch all of that, and you know, you'd do whatever you had to do. Okay, so But see,
0: that's the key word, Mukesh, isn't it? That you do whatever you had to do, which involved a lot of activity, which is what has yeah. gone today. So, if you are eating heavy processed meals and then lying down or lounging in front of the television after a meal, then you any food is going to be ha- harmful. Absolutely,
1: to absolutely, you. absolutely. I mean, the the ultimately movement. I mean practically every single piece of science definitely tells you that okay, movement is extremely important for your health. So it's not simply a question of your diet. Diet, of course, is extremely important, but along with that, you know, your mental well-being, okay, your physical well-being, the exercise that you need to do, the meditation that you need to do, okay, the social relationships that you need to have. I mean, it's really the combination of everything that really matters. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the Buddhist flower, it's not one single thing.
0: It's a petal. There's so many petals of
1: that. that. It all needs to come together.
0: So how can somebody wants to eat, uh, maybe just describe one day of eating if you need to be gluten-free, dairy-free, local and on a budget. Describe a breakfast, a lunch and a dinner.
1: Oh, pretty simple. Okay, so for example, a breakfast, okay now in my case that's what i would do today okay is it ragi roti mm. okay so ragi roti obviously i mean it is local out here okay R- ragi roti is some coconut chutney okay and then okay maybe a small banana okay lunch if i take a look at it i'm not hugely fond of rice okay but i do take it once in a way okay so bit of rice, bit of dal, okay, pumpkin sabji. Mm. That's what I've had today.
0: Which okay. is rich in beta carotene. Ah.
1: So dinner, okay, in all probability will be somewhat lighter. Okay. Where we'll end up having a simple chila. Hmm.
0: So okay. how could you add vegetables to a chila?
1: Oh, chila we always make it with vegetables anyway. Okay, so basically, you put a whole bunch of grated carrots.
0: Ah, okay.
1: Grated beetroot, maybe. Okay, chopped tomatoes, chopped onions. All that goes into making the chila.
0: So, it's got your fat, fiber, protein, color, everything in that one meal. And it's super simple, very light on the budget. So, it's really not tough to. Eat uh, healthy with vegetables um, on a budget so you don't have to be buying the most expensive yeah. vegetables. And you this can one more buy important,
1: it's easy to make, you don't have to wash a lot of vessels. Yeah,
0: it's Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, how about if somebody had to be? dairy free so no paneer no curd let's just say they had to bring in protein low budget and be dairy free what are the options
1: so for example okay chila for example is obviously very rich in protein Hmm. okay because it's made of basin yes Okay, your chole is rich in protein your rajma Hmm. is rich in protein okay your masoor dal is rich in protein your sprouted moong is rich in protein so tons I mean, there is is no shortage of options out there.
0: Yeah. Um, In your grandfather's time, maybe even further back of your ancestors, you might have uh, observed certain traditions around how people lived. So they would have a morning routine, evening routine, do you recall some of those traditions oh, and yes. how are there traditions which relate to keeping people healthy, allowing them to sleep better? What are some of those traditions that uh, day-to-day life, just daily habits which support sleep and health?
1: Okay, so is case, okay, if I take a look at it, there's one side of the family who had farms and one side of the family, they were priests. Hmm. Okay, very different lifestyle. Okay. So as far as the farm is concerned, it's pretty straightforward. Okay, you wake up really early in the morning. You take your cows out. And work on the field. So would they
0: do that before food or after food?
1: So generally, I think, you know, they would, food would come a bit later. They would start the day, okay, by first taking the cows out, washing the cows, getting the place clean, okay, feeding it all those things and then heading off okay, to the field i mean depending upon the season okay to plow or whatever it is and then after they would do a good couple of hours of work okay breakfast would follow after that so
0: they actually practice uh, intermittent fasting which is today such a fad yeah. but this is part of their culture
1: correct so breakfast would follow after that okay so there is a fair amount of work that should happen before breakfast okay then post-breakfast, okay, a little bit of working around the house, okay, whatever is there. Then back to the fields. Okay. Lunch inevitably would be a very, very simple lunch. I mean, I don't remember as a child the concept of dessert. Okay, dessert would be, as I said, okay, jackfruit with a peanut or something or the other. There was no mm. concept of a cooked dessert.
0: No keer.
1: It would happen during festivals. Ah
0: oh, yeah. Okay. So So sugar was actually kept. T- to sporadic
1: little yeah, it was events. Rare. Okay. And in fact, some of the other things that's common today was also very rare. I still remember in my grandfather's village, potatoes, for example, is a very rare thing.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: still remember there would be a talk in the village that okay, hey, this guy bought a potato, he, he's a big shot.
0: Was it because it was expensive or what was the reason?
1: It was expensive and it was not available. Mm. okay so if you wanted a tuber okay your tuber would be a radish Mm.
0: ah or no tapioca
1: in the place where i was there tapioca was not very common okay so it was Mm. mostly radish which would be common okay in fact onions and potatoes not at all okay you had radish in carrots not to a great degree those days Okay, so you, so where do
0: you think that change? Because that seems like an ideal diet for people. It's low in glycemic index, starch, sugar comes so sporadically that nobody's body starts to get addicted to it. That seems like the ideal. Uh, mantra for health and great living so how did that actually change was it that cultivation changed for yeah, i think cultivation better changed.
1: Yeah, cultivation to... changed as well as you know the entire supply chain changed mm. okay so earlier when you did not have transport okay you basically took what was available locally right even for example the greens i, I still remember there's no concept of cultivating greens that concept did not exist in my village actually
0: so, how did you get greens?
1: It used to grow wild.
0: Mm.
1: So, you just go, okay, chop some and bring it. Okay. Does and that
0: still happen in no, local no, no, villages?
1: No, no. no, it's, no. Gone. it's gone. So, are
0: people not consuming those greens or do they consciously grow
1: Actually, some of greens have disappeared in fact. Some of those greens have disappeared, some of the fruits have also disappeared. So, for example, I still remember talking about fruits. My uncle's farm, we used to have a banana Called Kariput mm. Bale, which means a black small banana. Okay, it would be the length of little bit longer than your, you know, your index finger. The skin would be jet black. Mm. Okay, extremely flavorful, but it was a very low output crop. I mean, you would not get, you know, some that big bunch. You would not get a big bunch. It would always be in small quantities. Okay. So, for example, similarly jackfruit. Okay, now you see yellow jackfruit. Okay, mm. we had a species that was bright orange.
0: Oh, we still very, have very that. bright orange. We have that in our farm. Uh,
1: yeah, it's not all that common in the marketplace anymore.
0: Oh, but okay. it's much sweeter. Very it tastes like honey.
1: Uh, but having said that, the quantity that you produce in a tree would be much smaller than the yellow one. Mm.
0: So, and yet you see hundreds of yellow jackfruit being discarded on roads everywhere.
1: Yeah. Okay, so so the food actually was very different, I mean there was one part, okay, the farm. But when it came to the priest side, the priest side also had its own, they had their own discipline. Okay, so you would wake up in the morning, you would first have a bath. Okay, then you would have your Sandhya Vandaram, this, that, etc, puja, and all those things. And by the time you are finished with all that, it would be good about 10, 10, 15 a.m. And very often, there will be no breakfast as such. There will be a brunch. Around 11 o'clock or so.
0: And then an early dinner.
1: Then an early dinner. And afternoon, maybe a small snack. Again, the small snack also usually would be a fruit and peanuts. Peanuts are a very common snack.
0: Would there be siestas there? Because a lot of traditions have some interesting uh, um, sleep norms. Like Spain, it's common for people to have a siesta after lunch. Japan, there's lying on a rice mat in Africa. And South America is about hammocks. So you do you recall anything like that traditions involving sleep, the surface yes. people slept on?
1: So the afternoon sleep, okay, would inevitably be never in a mattress or a bed. Okay. See the homes, the floor was always cow on floor. Okay, we didn't mm. have a concrete so floor cool, or
0: cool, very cool.
1: Okay, and what would happen is you take a, a chape, that's a mat. Mm. Okay, a straw mat. Okay. And you sleep on a straw mat. And typically, the sleep would be, it would not be a long three hour kind of sleep. That was never the case.
0: Would they sleep immediately after brunch?
1: Uh, generally, no. Okay, because what would happen is you would have your brunch. Okay. Then, inevitably, there would be some conversations. Uh. Okay. And outside the home, okay, there is something called as a juggly. Okay. A juggly is basically a sit out. Okay. Yeah. You sit on a
0: a veranda.
1: Ah, you sit out out there. There will be people coming back and forth. Right. There will be some chota conversation out there. See, typically about an hour, hour and a half after brunch would be that. And then you and take a nap about 30 minutes to 45 minutes, usually.
0: And usually, I don't know if you've read about the blue zones. Have you read about the blue no. zones? They're no. these zones studied by somebody across the globe where they're the longest lived traditions, even today and some of the common factors that they found in blue zones was they're not eating uh, they're eating fairly absolutely local but they're not eating highly restrictive diets or anything they're having a little bit of wine even sometimes but two things stood out and one was that they walked crazy amounts because they'd have to walk to fetch things itself. And it was not like Fitbits recording 10,000 steps. They found that on a normal day, people in blue zones walked about 25,000 steps. And two was that they always had a sense of tribe, community, and they would always have deep conversations with the whole society every day and that kept them stress free because they had a feeling of belonging and that there was somebody there for them all the time none of them in blue zones ever mentioned feeling sense of isolation depression anxiety it simply did not exist
1: you know that's very interesting because again my uncle he's still alive very much alive and very active mentally and physically lives in tiptooth he's about 80 I would say about 85 Mm. and I still remember his home and he was what you call as a Shanbo. That's a village accountant. Okay. So my aunt would open the door of the home, roughly I would say about half an hour, 45 minutes before sunrise. Okay. She would come and then wash the porch, the porch and put the Rangoli and go inside. Post sunrise, you would have people walking in. Mm. Okay, people would walk in, and you know you would have your conversation. And people want to go buy their milk and come or whatever it is. Constant stream of visitors through the day. It is not. He was not an isolated case. That was generally the way it was. Generally the way the society was. Okay, you tended to have a rather rich social life. Yes. And somewhere down the road, okay, if I recall, I never. I don't remember ever having seen, for example, my grandfather on my mother's side ever get angry. I've never seen that. Mm. And similarly, this uncle of mine, I've never seen him worked up. Never. In all these years.
0: In fact, recently also with the great spike in mental illness, diagnosis, depression, anxiety, one of the big factors that research found was that it was large... uh, predisposition in people who felt a sense of isolation, who did not have any sort of community sense. Mm. And when isolation was high, stress response was high, and therefore their predisposition to Mm. developing a mental illness diagnosis was much, much higher. So this is what they found in blue zones, that the sense of community was very, very high. Now, the other thing I want to ask you is that there's a lot of talk. If you look at sleep sites, there's a lot of emphasis on fancy, expensive gadgets, very expensive mattress. And is it really when we're talking about sleep and improving sleep in people, I don't think it should be about. Buying a mattress for one lakh or a duvet for a few thousand, ten, twenty thousand, that's just out of reach of many, many people. Let's say somebody wants to develop a wonderful sleep space to support better sleep if they're having challenges with sleep. How can they do that on a very low budget?
1: Ah, oh, here's the deal I have no expertise in sleep, but here's what I would do okay first I think you know okay let me put this in my my general sense is see first is there of course physical factors the second is there's emotional mental factors okay hmm. The emotional mental factor is relatively straightforward I think if you have a sense of gratitude right okay and if you have a sense that okay well of I'm going to of... stop
0: you for a second. Let's yeah. say somebody wants to build a practice of gratitude. Break it down. How can they actually apply it to their life? Because not everybody is meditating or able to really connect to feeling of surrender. How can simple habit every day which can increase gratitude and all the benefits of gratitude that come with it?
1: See, I think you don't it's rather simple i mean fundamentally it's simply taking a look at whatever you have and building the chain behind it that's really all that it takes you know for example let's say for example today okay i had a meal okay my wife cooked and the fact that okay well i had the meal i'm just conscious that i had a meal
0: when many and don't i'm just have conscious
1: it. that okay well you know i didn't make it but I got to have it. Mm. Very simple things. The moment you acknowledge the fact that okay, somebody else has contributed to you, okay, that gratitude automatically comes. Okay. It, it doesn't require a whole lot of deep spiritual thought or anything of that kind. It is just just connecting the dots even to a second degree. It doesn't even have to be to the fourth or fifth degree. Right. That's one. And the second thing pretty much is which, I, which helps me particularly, Is that okay when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed? Okay, you do spend a bit of time being grateful. And there are enough things to be grateful about. Okay, I think that definitely puts you emotionally at a great amount of ease. Okay, so that in itself, I would imagine, at least as one part, there's a physical part, and as I said, there's an emotional spiritual part. The emotional-spiritual part is rather easy. Okay, just paying a bit of attention to it. The physical part, I'm pretty sure it's a lot more complex. I mean, if people have pain, if they have hormonal disorders, whatever it is, I'm I'm sure that would require a specialist intervention. Okay, to do whatever. Okay. But either way... I I cannot... No, but how
0: can they actually, like they want to... uh, They're not getting good sleep, so cheapest mattress, which is great for sleep, how can they actually create a little space for themselves, which doesn't cost a lot?
1: So I said, one part is, okay, the emotional, mental part, where you're at peace, you're more likely to sleep much more easily. That's number one. Yes. Uh, Number two, I think, is probably paying a little bit of attention to how you feel. So I'll give you physically. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for example, I know for sure if I have dinner at nine o'clock, and I try to sleep at 9.30, it doesn't work for me. Mm. I just feel very uncomfortable. Okay. Also, if I have dinner and if i not walked at least 10, 15, 20 minutes, I'm very uncomfortable.
0: And these were all parts of uh, uh, ancestral tradition, yes. just yes. strolling around after dinner.
1: Correct. There was no around.
0: Netflix back then, so nobody yeah. would just come, collapse on the couch after dinner or even yeah. eat dinner mindlessly watching yeah. a television yeah. Yeah. show. Yeah.
1: Okay. Then a few other things. I mean, in general, I think, at least my personal experience, if your stomach is heavy or uncomfortable, it's very hard to sleep. Mm. Okay, so what you do for dinner okay, seems to really matter. Okay, I you think, think the common
0: are... thing many people tell about this is that a lot of people are out all day working. So dinner is the only meal they have hot food at home. So they, they actually put more emphasis on the last meal. Um, and sometimes they can't avoid, they're coming back late, they want to sit with the family, eat a warm meal and then they're tired. So usually what I tell them in that situation is going back to yoga's knowledge that if you lie down on your left side with your right nostril facing up, even if you're a bit full, you are allowing digestion to take place. So if you mm-hmm. absolutely can't avoid doing that late dinner and going to sleep sometimes, then that's the way that you can actually support yourself.
1: Yeah, you know, that's one part. Okay, So for example, typically, what helps is especially when my daughter is also around, wife's also around, post dinner is always a time for conversations.
0: Mm.
1: Okay, and you know, normally, say, for example, when you discuss, okay, you can discuss people, okay, you can discuss events, you can discuss ideas. Okay, post dinner is always a time to discuss ideas. Okay, because ideas tend to be very neutral. Okay, yeah. and that's also something, okay, that activates your mind in a variety of ways, and when you combine that with some of gratitude, okay, it just gets you in a mental state that's absolutely wonderful. That's and a that's conducive that to,
0: to good sleep.
1: Yeah. In addition to that, of course, there is always meditation and all those things that definitely help.
0: And do you believe that it's more important that someone has a simple, even a five ten minute daily meditation oh, yes, practice versus those who feel they can't do it and they go away every three months for 10 days? I mean, which is wonderful if they can do that. But I feel that little bits every day make a world of difference.
1: So, you know, again, if I were to go back to the Buddhist thought, mm-hmm. like there are two types of meditation that you talk about. One is Vipassana, and second is Shamatha. Hmm. Shamatha is all about paying attention. So for example, you know, you have that famous Vietnamese monk, Tick Not Hanh. Okay, so one of the things that he says is eating an orange meditation. I know it sounds very bizarre. <laughs> okay, but when you take an orange, you peel it. When you peel it, you enjoy the fragrance, ah, you enjoy I the texture, you this. enjoy the color. Yeah, and when you doing chew the particular everything orange,
0: mindfully.
1: Okay. Now, you don't need to go away anywhere. Okay, whatever you are doing, you are paying attention. That is meditation, right? Yes. Okay, I think it helps it immensely.
0: And actually that's missing today because everyone's attention is fragmented and everybody's moving quickly from one thought to the other when they're doing, uh, when they're with their child, they're thinking about work, when they're at work, they're thinking about what's going on. And what you're saying is simply if you're at work, put all your awareness there. If you're with friends, give that all your attention. If you're with family, give that all your attention. Now, if... um. There are actually 100 million people with diagnosed sleep disorders today. This is not counting the hundreds of thousands more that are there, especially in India, because diagnosis is much, much less. What Mm -hmm. would you feel is the biggest root cause of poor sleep?
1: See, amongst the people that I interact with, socially interact with, I think the physical circumstances for most people is very comfortable. Mm. Okay, there is no huge economic issues and all that. A lot of the issues that they encountered, I have quite a few friends who have sleep challenges. My general sense pretty much is it has a lot of it has to do with, you know, frankly, lack of contentment more than anything else. Why? See, The issue pretty much is, at some level, understanding that, okay, you being one up doesn't matter that somehow people don't get it. Mm. Okay, so I always quote one thing, let's say, for example, you're on the top 5% of intellectuals, let us say, the world population is about 7 billion people, multiply by 5% even if you're in the top 5%, okay, there are a few hundred millions that are brighter than you, so does it really matter? Yes. So let's say even if you're a Gandhiji, okay, one of the greatest guys ever born, mm. at the end of the day, there's a postal stamp and somebody uh, leaks it, puts it over taka put a stamp on that. Correct. Right. And similarly, if I ask you that, okay, well, who was the Nobel Prize winner of physics two years ago, you probably would not remember. So when you put things in perspective and realize that, okay, well, you know, our sense of importance about us is somewhat exaggerated. A lot of these stresses in life go away.
0: Mm. So would you say that just letting go of that alone and just thinking that, that everybody a huge is amount. equal, is uh, that the, helps helps yeah, a huge amount. I think st- so because the fact is what you're saying is very key because that's what is happening in social media because they're fragmented lives. So what people portray is a perfect persona out there when in reality it's not the case yet when somebody looks at that they get a deep sense of vulnerability and then it drops so many levels into stress, mental illness. So that's a key point that you said, and um,
1: there's, a, there's a very interesting yes. story. Mm. Okay. Again, one of my favorite characters, okay, in Buddhist literature, is a person named Hote. So Hote is he, mm. he's variously called as the fat China man called as a laughing Buddha and all that. Mm. So the story I mean, there's multiple metaphors about him. So one of the most interesting metaphors is Hoti is the richest man in the world. Okay. The question is, why is he the richest man? So here's a fellow who just has one kind of a cloth okay, that is tied to his waist. He has a chota bag and he's moving around everywhere. Like he is generally happy with life. He doesn't really own anything.
0: Mm.
1: Now Hoti is the richest man for a very simple reason. Hote wants nothing. Now, if you want nothing, by definition, you have everything that you want. Right. If you have everything that you want, you're the richest guy. Okay. The second story about him, which is very interesting, is equally, he has a small bag that he's carrying around. And a person stops him and says, Hote, you're an accomplished Zen monk. Okay. So what is the principle of Zen? He takes his bag, keeps it down, steps aside, looks at the bag and smiles.
0: Hmm.
1: And the person says, yes, understood. So what's the practice of Zen? He gives a huge chuckle, like he picks up his bag and walks away. So that's the story. Hmm. So the bag actually represents the sum total of experiences of your life. If you can carry it in a very light manner, you're not burdened by it. Right. You can detach yourself from it.
0: And that's why some people have more resilience, less resilience. Correct.
1: Okay, so to some extent, if I, if I had to go back to what you said, okay, about fragmented being and all that, okay, it's a very simple principle. I mean, at the end of the day, okay, there is many stuff that happens to our lives, which, in the grand scheme of things, are events that pass by. Mm. Let it pass. Okay, have your contentment. Okay, enjoy whatever friends you have, relations what you have. Generally, be at peace, I guess. And you know, the thing pretty much is, very often people feel that, okay, if you're that, you're not ambitious, you're not goal-oriented. That's not true at all, actually.
0: Yeah. I've actually asked Sham this question multiple times. So where is the balance between, does that make, does it mean that if you bring in so many aspects of spirituality that you're letting go of ambition? And he's also told me the same answer that no
1: it's not okay simply because see the difference between it is not that you're lazy and you're indifferent that's not the case okay you still have the drive you still have the passion but you also have the acceptance
0: so does that mean you're just practicing like bhagavad-gita you're surrendering the results but you're still putting in all the work yes yes thank you so lots of little stories which will excite people and lot of practical information that you gave because some of the challenges that people actually face with eating healthy is that sense of um, how expensive it can become and that's not want, what we want health to be Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed the show. Just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only. This is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified health professional. This information is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you are looking for personal help, On your health journey, do seek out a medical practitioner. Please do make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with your doctor or otherwise qualified healthcare professional. It is in no way intended as medical advice as a substitute for medical counseling or as treatment or cure for any particular health condition. Be sure to always work directly with a qualified health practitioner before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle that may feel out of your realm of comfort or understanding. If you are looking for an allied functional medicine practitioner, do seek out more information on www.phytothrive.com or www.sleepwhisperer.pro. It is important that you have someone who is qualified and understands your health personally in order to provide adequate care, especially when it comes to chronic health conditions.